Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is June the 27th, 2022, and the news remains dominated by um, the debates, if that's the right word, a kind word, a euphemism for what's taking place in America over the Supreme Court uh, abortion ruling. A previous guest on the show, Stephen Marsh, the Canadian writer, um, suggests that uh, with the end of Roe, the United States has edged closer and closer to civil war. I think Stephen thinks we're in civil war, we being America. Uh, Marsh was on the show talking about the Trump election, or the Trump, I don't know if that's the right word to describe the Trump election, the Great Steal or whatever you want to call it. Um, and uh, he had a book out, The Next Civil War, about that. Uh, we also had Barbara Walter on the show, another uh, rather pessimistic analyst of the possibility of civil war in America recently. Um, all this, of course, was brought to the boil with the January 6th uh, hearings. Today, the news is that there's going to be uh, a new hearing uh, tomorrow, Tuesday, um, June 28th. Um, and one of those uh, one of those hearings are going to involve Eric Trump, Donald Trump's son, who was supposedly inciting violence, believed he thought was fair game. It's all about the steal, or what was at least perceived to be the steel. What does January 6th say about American democracy and the prospects for war? Most of us are rather pessimistic when it comes to that and, of course, the consequences of the 2020 election. But my guests today on the show, I think, are a little bit more optimistic. Um, they are the co-authors of a book that just came out earlier this year, The Steel, the attempt to overturn the 2020 election and the people who stopped it. And they're both very distinguished writers in their own right, Mark Bowden and Matthew Teague. They're both uh, on the show today. Let's start with you, um, Matt. Um, what do you think the writing of your book, The Steel, tells us about what's happening now in America? Uh, the abortion debate, the January 6th investigations. Should we be a little bit more optimistic given what you found in the steel? Uh, well, I would say Mark may disagree, but I, I think we kept the focus of the book uh, fairly specific. Um, our uh, targeted time and subject was what happened between election election day and, uh, and January 6th, what happened in those weeks. Um, and the thing that I personally am optimistic about, uh, which, you know, difficult to use that word these days, but is the uh, electoral system itself. Um, there was a great deal of uh, fear and claims uh, uh, that it had been overthrown, that it was uh, uh, flawed and fraudulent, things like that. And I think what we found was that it would be... Uh, incredibly difficult, nearly impossible um, to pull off the kind of um, fraud that was being claimed by Trump and his campaign. Um, so that's what we're optimistic about is the, the way the system works. Um, now, outside of that, 
um, what Americans are doing, um, how they're voting, things like that. That's a little bit of a different story. Uh, but the system itself, I think, is, is holding. Let's bring uh, Mark in. Um, Mark Baden, uh, very distinguished writer, written many, many books. Uh, too many to mention, but uh, most of our audience will have read something by you, Mark. Why did you decide to uh, to to write uh, to to write um, the Steel? It's not the kind of book that you normally are associated with. Was it a a, a personal mission to co-author this book to to investigate what actually happened during the election of 2020? It was. I mean, I saw, I thought that what happened after the election on, in 2020 was unprecedented in American history. And I think um, Matt and I both felt that so much of the focus would be on the attack on the Capitol building on January 6th, when if you look back earlier, you know, in the months leading up to January 6th, it's clear that Donald Trump made a very determined and concerted effort to overturn this election in the six swing states that really mattered. And so to document that effort, it seemed to me, um, was very, very worthwhile, something that belongs in our memory of, the, of those days and belongs in our understanding of Trump's response to losing the election. Uh, many people would, of course, associate you with Black Hawk Down, a book about uh, heroism. Uh, some people have suggested that um, your book is about what the New York Times reviewer called the unsung heroes of the 2020 presidential election. Uh, would it be fair to say, uh, Mark, that The Steel is a book about heroism, American heroism, a different kind of heroism from the one you normally write about? Absolutely. Uh, you know, I don't think that I fully appreciated this before Matt and I began working on the book. But the bottom line is that this effort to overturn the election failed in every one of those six swing states. And they failed primarily because Republicans and, and even Republican Trump supporters refused to be as dishonest as Donald Trump wanted them to be. The, uh, they, they adhered to their uh, oath of office to the, uh, and to their personal integrity in the face of, of great pressure being applied in many cases directly by the president of the United States. So it was a finding or an outcome of our reporting that we didn't anticipate when we started, but I think it does um, speak well of the American people and the system. And I think it also um, is the reason why, as Matt indicated earlier, you know, we, we find it um, hard to believe that anybody could successfully pull off the kind of uh, effort that Trump made or beyond that, you know, the thing that Trump alleged, which was that somehow millions of votes had been switched. I mean, that just, if you understand how the election system works, is a preposterous notion. Let's bring Matt back in. Matt, my impression has always been that Donald Trump 
is a bit of a clown. In your investigation of the steel, did you find that there was a coordinated, professional, impressive effort to steal the election? Or was it typical Trump bombast, a sort of inefficient, absurd, mountebank-style bombast attempting to bully small people unsuccessfully? Oh, I think I think it was largely the latter. Um, I think it was a combination of, of things. Uh, one being the bombast, uh, sort of ad hoc, uh, uh, impromptu effort to overturn an American election. I think it was also, though, um, a received thing on the ground that uh, people were, were, as has always been true with Donald Trump, is that people were hearing the thing that they wanted to hear. And when they heard it, they believed it. Um, and so I think it was a combination of those things. There were a few people, as we continue to learn, uh, due to the work of the January 6th committee, there were a few people who were trying to sort of coordinate things at the top. But for the most part, it was this communication happening between Trump uh, and his followers. Uh, let's bring Mark back in. Uh, Mark, you had a couple of interesting pieces in the run-up. Uh, to the election, why uh, you, you you write for the, also for the Atlantic uh, about the infection of fake news and the local level, and also about the way in which top military officers push back on Trump. Uh, recently, I had Mark Esper on the show, the former Trump Minister of Defense, who did indeed push back. In terms of thinking about the few months before the 2020 election, what do you think the decisive moments were? in terms of standing up to Trump that perhaps enabled uh, election officials in the six states you investigated to also stand up to the guy? Well, I think that the, the, the only real pushback that Trump got from his own party came in the, you know, the months before election day in 2020, when Trump began uh, urging Republicans not to vote by mail which was a, a really self-defeating thing to do, as many of these state and local officials understood. Uh, in uh, Wisconsin, for instance, the state Republican Party had sent out circulars to all Republicans urging them to vote by mail with a big picture of Donald Trump thumbs up on the, on the front of it. Um, in a state like that, where turnout in the urban centers uh, was going to be uh, greater, the opportunity for rural people and old people to vote by mail, this was during COVID, um, was an opportunity that they didn't want to miss. And so they saw, you know, Trump's uh, argument for, vote, you know, not voting by mail to be really damaging. And it turned out that, that it was really damaging to their, to their goals in that, in that election. But I think that Trump was looking at something else. I think he was planting the seeds of distrust in the election itself. And so it enabled him, he continued to claim after election day that there was something inherently corrupt about voting by mail and that it couldn't be properly counted and, and, and uh, checked up on. So, uh, you know, I think that's, it turned out to be one of the big themes and continues to be in the um, false allegations that the election was stolen. 
You mentioned Wisconsin, Mark. Uh, one of the characters I think you write about in the book is a man called Roan Bishop. I hadn't heard of all these characters. Tell me a little bit about men like Bishop. What, are they just typical Americans who understood the difference between right and wrong and were were willing to put their careers and perhaps even their lives on the line for this? Absolutely. Ron Bishop typifies uh, the characters that we found in states all over the country. Ron is a lifelong Republican. He comes from a family that is very proud of its Republicanism. His grandfather, his father, he was the head of the Republican Party in Fond du Lac uh, County in, in uh, Wisconsin. And he, you know, worked very hard to try to get Trump elected. Um, after the election day, when, when Trump lost, at, at the same time that many of his local candidates won, you know, Ron, who's very familiar with the voting system and how it works, and who was part of an effort, a Republican effort, just a few years ago, to reform the election system in Wisconsin, to make it uh, more transparent fairer, had a tremendous amount of faith in the system that he had invested so much of his time and energy in. And so when his neighbors started telling him, parroting these things that Trump was saying or that, that they saw on Fox TV or One America Network, that machines were rigged and that votes had been delivered at night by trucks and things like that, he would push back and he would say, this, this kind of thing doesn't happen. It can't happen. And he knew why it couldn't happen. And so he he came under quite serious uh, vilification and attack. It sent him to the hospital. He ended up with a, um, you know, a, a heart problem. Um, but in the end, you know, Ron believed the election was fair. He was reelected to his position uh, after the 2020 election as party chairman. I re recently was uh, elected mayor of his hometown. Uh, let's bring Matt back in. Matt, in addition to, to Rowan Bishop, who really sticks out for you in terms of the conversations, the stories about standing up to the big lie of the steel? Uh, well, I think about people um, from the top to the bottom. Uh, in Georgia, for instance, uh, Brad Raffensperger was the Secretary of State, uh, right. very famously stood up to Donald Trump directly on the phone. Um, during a conversation which Trump, you know, told him to, quote, find uh, 11,000 plus votes. Um, but down um, sort of at the, the lowest rung of the political ladder in Georgia were a lot of people like Ruby Freeman and her daughter, uh, Shay Moss, um, who were just working opening envelopes um, uh, in Georgia uh, and took heaps and heaps of abuse. Uh, people showing up at their homes calling them names, harassing them online, making up stories about their criminality. Um, and this wasn't just know the nothings uh, on the internet. This was Rudy Giuliani, uh, attorney to the president of the United States, the president of the United States himself, um, uh, sort of inventing these stories um, in, in phone calls and things like that. Um, and so for people to just show up and do the most fundamental work of the democracy, opening envelopes, um, required uh, real bravery. Um, right. And so my hope is that as their stories sort of become known, hopefully um, our book has helped with that. Certainly the uh, January 6th committee has helped 
uh, shine a light on that. Hopefully there will be increasing protections for people who are working um, elections. You, you talk about Ruby uh, Freeman, uh, African-American woman. I, I don't want to get myself into trouble, but I, I had another conversation with another writer and I suggested, and I got into trouble for this, that perhaps African-American women have more sensitivity to abuses of American democracy uh, than others. We've done a lot of shows about the struggle for black women, for example, to vote, Martha Jones. Also done shows with the, um, the Georgia political uh, writer, Carol Anderson, who has a book out called One Person, No Vote, about the corruption of the electoral system. Did, I don't, I, I, I'm, I'm not encouraging you to fall into racial stereotyping in any way, Matt, but did you find that you think some Americans have more sensitivity about abuses of the electoral system than others? Uh, I didn't find that uh, Ruby Freeman or, or the people who worked with her were more sensitive. Uh, I think it's probably the, more ca the case that they were more targeted. Um, if you look at the language that Giuliani, for instance, used to describe these people, um, he said they were they looked like they were smuggling dope. Uh, they were thugs. He was sort of using language that's been historically used to categorize black people. So. You know, whether they're more sensitive, I have no idea, but I think it's pretty clear that they were they were more uh, singled out. Let's go back to Mark. Mark, as I said earlier, many people would be familiar with Black Hawk Down, for example, your classic written many books about warfare of one kind or another. Did your war reporting come in useful to write about the steel? Did you find that some of the the experiences and conversations you had in war were similar to the ones you had in researching the steel? Yeah, I think it's true. I, I actually think that the skills that a reporter brings to any story are the same, whatever the story is. And it's certainly true that, you know, when I write about war, I'm very interested in both sides. Uh, you know, when I read, wrote about the Battle of Mogadishu, I wanted to understand what prompted the residents of Mogadishu to uh, open fire on American soldiers and attack uh, the men who went out on that raid, just as I was interested in understanding the American soldiers and what was motivating them and what they thought you know, was important about what they were doing. So in the steel, then one of the things that I'm proudest of in that book are the efforts that I made to understand the people who bought in to Donald Trump's claims and who were huge supporters of Trump in the face of overwhelming evidence that he was wrong and how and why they persevered. And I think if you read The Steel, you will see in-depth portraits of people who carried you know, their belief in him to lengths that many of us would regard as, as ridiculous. But I think that part of the challenge of uh, writing a book like The Steel is to understand why, you know, wh what is the thought process? You know, what is the life experience that brings someone like Leah Hoops to this uh, kind of rabid activist support of someone like Donald Trump? Yeah, Leah Hoops is someone you also write about in the book. Um, Mark, does history, could history repeat itself? Could we see 
another big lie in 2024 if Trump runs against Biden and we have a similar sort of outcome? Do you feel that any of this got resolved in your research or is it quite conceivable that the people who believed in the lie in 2020 will believe in it once again in 2024? I think I predict that it will happen, um, you know, and not just Donald Trump and his followers. I think the the uh, efficacy of this kind of uh, dishonest um, uh, way of attacking the election system um, can, has, is effective. Uh, I, I would anticipate in the, in the future, we will see more candidates who will cast doubt on our election system and we'll look back on the previous 200 years where nothing like this happened uh, as a idyllic interlude in American history. This is a rough and tumble democracy. And I think if you can demonstrate as Trump did that by undermining belief in something as basic as counting the vote, you can cast doubt on any outcome of any election. So unless Congress acts to shore up that election system, and unless there are protections put in place for people like Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss and Ron Bishop and others who are uh, you know, directly involved in the election process, I think that uh, this episode in 2020 has demonstrated a very serious vulnerability in our democracy. And I presented your book as a, 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 as a as an optimistic one, and uh, clearly I'm wrong. Uh, would you agree, uh, Matt, with uh, your co-author, Mark? Um, do you think that this suggests that either from the right or the left that this is likely to happen again and might be worse, could even literally result in civil war? Oh, well, I, I agree with what Mark said, that uh, I think it's... Um... Uh, likely, maybe even inevitable, um, that something like it will happen again. The the genie of, of this lie is out of the bottle. Um, as far as predicting a civil war, I, I, I don't feel comfortable going that far. Um, I think that there are lots of uh, things in place to stop that from happening, not the least of which is that we're not geographically um, split the way we were during the, the American Civil War. Um, but uh, you know, it's a complex time and uh, it's difficult to predict. Um, I, I think, you know, like I said, I think the book is optimistic in its narrow scope, is that I think we can have faith that the electoral system uh, is strong and will work. And so we want to reassure people of that as they hear these lies going forward. Um, but yeah, and, you know, I don't think either of us claims to be optimistic really beyond that. Did you see any problems with the, the, the system? I mean, we did a show uh, recently with Nick Seabrook, a young political scientist on the, the problem with gerrymandering in America. Um, as I said, we've done stuff with Carol Anderson about the rottenness of the lack of uh, the undermining of the voting rights act did, did, did you come out of this with any concerns uh, matt about american democracy the the, the um the guts of american democracy the, the the plumbing the voting system where where's the weak link if if it is to be corrupted um yeah i mean clearly there there are issues it's an enormous and complex system um I, 
I would say that that, that complexity is actually uh, its, its weakness, but it's also its strength. Um, and, and that's what we're talking about when we say we're optimistic, is that it's such a decentralized um, system that there's not a building that you can run into with horns on your head uh, in Washington, D.C. and overthrow it and uh, take over the country, which is what they tried to do. Um, that it, it, it doesn't happen that way. It happens in every county, in every state, in every town uh, around the United States. And that means that uh, it's our neighbors, it's the people we know that we go to church with, that we eat dinner with and things like that and go to school. Those are the people counting these votes. Um, and so you would have to penetrate that deep to really overthrow effectively an American election. Let's go back to Mark. Mark, you, you, you suggested that you predicted rather disturbingly you think the thing might happen again. How, how are we going to avoid it? Ed Luce has been on the show, the FT U.S. correspondent believes it's time to put Trump on trial. What would you do if we're going to try and head off another of these crises? Does Congress, does the judiciary, um, do all Americans need to draw a line in the sand? What can be done? Well, first of all, you know, I, I don't, I do agree with Matt, you know, that our election system is not easy to manipulate. But what I think beyond that, what did happen in 2020 was that a president lied about the way the system worked and convinced a lot of people uh, with pure misinformation, uh, baseless misinformation, that uh, that that wasn't true, and millions of people bought it. So I think you know my fear is that with the rise of television networks, which are essentially propaganda platforms, uh, that more and more and more as we go forward, it's harder for Americans to sort out uh, the truth from, from fiction. So to me, you know, the, the danger to our democracy is this uh, uh, world of, of uh, false information, deliberate misinformation, lies, the echo chamber of these of social media um, has enabled candidates to invent uh, storylines and sell it, you know, to the American people. And I don't know that there's an easy solution to this. I mean, we can't have government regulating speech, uh, but in the past, you know, there was there were some safeguards in place so that most information that was broadcast or presented to people was edited to some extent for simply for accuracy for one thing and nowadays there isn't even that going on so i mean as someone who spent his life as a journalist this is a very dangerous world that we live in that actually harkens back in some ways to you know to the 19th century and to what you see in many countries around the world where there is no honest uh media that is widely believed. Uh, to me, that's, you know, a far bigger danger to our country than any kind of election shenanigans. As I said, you had an interesting piece about the demise of local news um, as a kind of pandemic and a cause of the big steal. Do you think that the platforms, the Facebooks and Twitters of the world, do they need to be accountable? Do we re need to rethink um, regulation when it comes to social media. After all, much of this news is not 
traditionally published, like 19th century newspapers, or all exists on platforms like Facebook and Twitter. Yeah, I do think that um, the people who run these large social media networks um, need to be held accountable for the information that they spread. And so, I mean, their traditional posture has been they don't pay any attention to what individuals post on their own websites or share. I think beyond a certain point, misinformation can only be stopped if somebody is uh, in charge. Clearly, government is not um, the, the answer because you know that would infringe upon people's freedom of speech. But I think that uh, there should be a level of responsibility uh, incumbent on anyone who is making money off of a platform that distributes information. Matt, do you agree with Mark? Is one of the core problems here social media, the internet, and oh, an yeah. absence of curation when it comes to local news in particular? Yeah, I think certainly. Um, and uh, we described really, Mark described uh, in the book, it was his term, uh, the blunderbuss strategy. Um, which was the, this thing that sort of Giuliani and company came up with just to blast out information uh, into social media and the internet, uh, making allegations about the election. And it really didn't matter, like with a blunderbuss gun, sort of a precursor to the shotgun. It didn't matter what you stuffed into it. It didn't have to be accurate. It could be broken glass and bits of nails and shards of things. It didn't matter. It didn't matter if it was accurate. It didn't matter if it was true. It just had to be there blasted out to sort of confuse people. Um, and so, yeah, I think there has to be some sense of responsibility on the people holding uh, the blunderbuss. Mark, you conveniently uh, avoided my question on, on Trump. Is, is that loose right? Is, is, is the time to put Trump on trial? Is it drawing near? Do you think we need to do that? I think he certainly deserves to be put on trial and he deserves to go to jail for what he did. Uh, whether that's a wise thing to do politically, I'm not so sure about. Uh, I think that uh, you know, this country is so divided. Um, if a Democratic president um, is presiding over a Justice Department that is attempting to prosecute his predecessor, that sets a precedent that is very troubling in American history. And we could easily foresee that our country could turn into what you will see in many countries around the world where you know political opponents are not just your worthy adversaries but are regarded as criminal because they don't believe in the same things that you do so to me the idea of any president prosecuting his predecessor and putting him in jail is troubling a troubling precedent even though i really do believe that donald trump richly deserves to be prosecuted for what he did in 2020. Matt, where are you on this? Do you agree with um, Do you agree with Mark that essentially Trump deserves to go to jail, but we probably shouldn't send him because that creates a precedent? Uh, yeah, I, th I think that's um, a, a fair way of looking at it. I mean, it's pretty clear from the evidence that Trump knew what was going on and uh, was sort of the driving force behind it, and it was illegal. So, uh, yeah, I think he deserves to go to jail for what he did. But like Mark said, you don't have to travel to very many sort of uh, banana republics 
to see that um, that's just not really a tenable system. So hopefully um, the American people will, uh, you know, come to an understanding about what happened and prevent it from ever happening again. Matt, you use this term banana republics. I'm not sure if that's politically correct these days, but is America oh, becoming that's a, true. a banana? But you're allowed to use it on my show. I'll use it too. <laughs> um, is America becoming a banana republic? At what point could it become one? I don't know. Honestly, that's such a that's such a an enormous question. It's probably beyond me. Um, I think that uh, it some of it may be a matter of attrition in a sense, is that as people become more savvy, younger uh, sort of people uh, coming along understand the way that uh, information can be manipulated online. Uh, I've seen it already in my own children, um, is that they are a little more skeptical about things that are uh, that that they read, whereas maybe uh, some people who grew up reading things in the newspaper, whatever, they feel like, hey, somebody wrote this down, it must be true and don't have the skepticism that they should. My hope is that uh, in time, the American people will become wiser about the way they've been manipulating. Well, you managed to squeeze a little bit of optimism in at the end, Matt. Uh, <laughs> your book is optimistic. It's a wonderful piece of journalism and a really important one. The Steel, the attempt to overturn the 2020 election and the people who stopped it. It's a book of heroism and a book about the... Um, I think the viability or the indestructibility of American democracy, hopefully. Uh, what else should people be reading? What have you been reading, um, Matt, that you think is good companion stuff to your to your uh, co-author, The Steel? Uh, well, I, uh, I'm in the midst right now of tackling probably the, the, the most difficult, largest, but also maybe the most important book that I've ever read. It's a book called A Secular Age by Charles Taylor, a philosopher, ah. um, who sort of sets out to ask the question, why is it that throughout the entirety of human history for millennia and millennia, it was almost impossible to not believe um, in a deity? And then we've arrived suddenly um, at this moment uh, in time when it's um, almost impossible to hold on to that belief is that it's, it's falling away so quickly. And why is that happening? And I think that some of that, uh, <clears throat> the friction between those two ideas is, is part of what we're seeing play out right now in America. Did he convince you to become a good communitarian, Charles Taylor, Matt? <laughs> is that, no, I don't know. I, I grew up as a Southern Baptist, and so it would be, it would be hard for me to, to drift too far yeah. away. Great, well, thank you. And uh, finally, um, uh, Mark Bolden, uh, what else are you reading? Again, congratulations to both of you on this wonderful book, The Steal, The Attempt to Overturn the 2020 Election and the People Who Stopped It. A wonderful achievement. What else, uh, Mark, are you reading these days? I know you've just finished the book, which is going to be out next year, so we'll have you back on the show to talk about that one. Good. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Andrew. I, I read widely and often far afield from what I'm writing about because often the things that I'm writing about require me to read a lot of what I call kind of bad books, which are books that I need to read to digest information that I'm not, that I don't read for enjoyment. But I did just recently, uh, relatively recently, reread The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich by William Shirer. And that is mm. a book that really holds up. And I've read 
I've read more recent biographies of Hitler, more recent accounts of that period. Uh, but that book, which is one of the first really big books written about the rise of Nazism in Germany, I think really holds up both as a piece of scholarship and also as a wonderful, wonderfully written book. And so I think it's particularly relevant to the kind of things that we saw happening with the Trump administration and certainly in you know the putsch effort that was made after 2020. So I found that uh, to be fascinating. The other book I would recommend, and it has nothing to do with anything that we're talking about, is a book uh, by the science fiction writer Kim Stanley Robinson called Aurora, uh, which he wrote about four or five years ago. And it's just an extraordinary imaginary um, story of and the first effort to project humanity out to another part of the universe and populate another planet. And I think it has a very powerful lesson for us here on Earth. And it's beautifully written and, as I said, just strikingly well imagined. So I would recommend either of those books.